Hi, I'm LeVar Burton, and this is LeVar Burton Reads. In every episode, I handpick a different piece of short fiction, and I read it to you. The only thing these stories have in common is that I love them, and I hope you will too. First of all, y'all, I am super excited about this. This is our first new episode of the podcast with our immersive binaural sound. Here's what this means. You're going to experience the story feeling like it's a bit more 3D. You'll want to listen to headphones in order to get the full experience. And so you know what to listen for, my voice, the sound effects, and music will move around you like this. I can be way above you. I can be behind you. I could be to the right of you or to the left. I could be far away or I could be really, really close. That's pretty wild, isn't it? So, Please let us know what you think once you've listened to the episode. Leave us a review with your thoughts on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, or email me at lavarburtonreads at gmail.com. And I have another very happy announcement to make today. I want to let you all know about the winners of the LeVar Burton Reads Writing Contest. Along with Fire Literary Magazine and Tor.com, I have chosen the winning entries, and I could not have been more impressed by all y'all's talent. Our writing prompt was Origins and Encounters, and I asked you to think about the joys and pitfalls of blended civilizations and cultural exchanges in all their forms. I really loved how thoughtfully you interpreted this prompt and how different the works were. So, without further ado, let me recognize the winners. First, we've awarded honorable mention to the story Chinatown Mission House for Wayward Girls by James Longin Yu. Third place, Synthetic Perennial by Dakisha Reed. Second place, Girl Oil by Grace P. Fong. And first place, The Last Truth by Anna Maria Curtis. I'll be reading that first place winner on the podcast next month on February 22nd, and Tor.com will be publishing the top three winning stories on their website that very same day. I am so excited for you all to experience these writers' gifts. Now, today's story is by the American-born, London-dwelling, award-winning author Pat Cadigan. She's a major player in the cyberpunk genre, and she's been exploring the relationships between the human mind and technology in her work for decades in her short stories and her novels, including Mind Players, Sinners, and Fools. Today's story is entitled The Final Performance of the Amazing Ralphie, and it was originally published in the anthology Avatars, Inc., and republished in the year's best science fiction, Volume 2, edited by Jonathan Strahan. Our protagonist has been sentenced to life off Earth for her criminal activities, though the life actually doesn't seem to be too bad there. She's working in a hospice running AI avatars as companions for the patients. That is, 
until she comes across one particularly unpredictable avatar named the Amazing Ralphie. This story was a really fun ride for me, and it's actually gotten me to reconsider my position on AI. Maybe not in the direction you would think. I'm so glad that I read it. And if you are so inclined, you can find a written content advisory in the episode description. And now, if you're ready, let's take a deep breath. (sighs) And begin. The Final Performance of the Amazing Ralphie by Pat Cadigan The second Ms. Flora's back in the ward for medical, before they can even get her tucked into the wall cocoon, she's demanding the Amazing Ralphie. All of the amazing avatars are prescription only, because they're so intense. Her record says Dr. Tex gave her 12 refills, or reruns. This is almost as amazing as Ralphie. Hospice patients don't usually get that many at a time. Maybe Tex doesn't think she'll last long enough to use them all. I guess old Tex hasn't seen Ms. Flora today. She's always a diva, and right now, she looks like she can kick all our asses without even getting winded. I check her record again. Nope, no spontaneous miracle remission. She's still terminal. Don't ask me. I'm just a tech head. When I hit my third strike and the judge gave me a choice of life on earth or life off it, I took door number two thinking I'd rather take my chances riding a rocket than spend the rest of my life with five other women in a cell made for three in the Canbraska State Pen. I got no regrets, but I really had no idea what I was signing up for. The mental whiplash is crazy. Or maybe I should have known. Living in space is nothing like it is on Earth. Why wouldn't dying be different, too? Besides, running avatars for terminal cases can be pretty sad sometimes. But it's better than cleaning zero-G toilets in a Lagrange resort for the obscenely rich. Anyway, just as I'm about to activate the amazing Ralphie, I see he's already up and running. And Ms. Flora's all smiles. Diva smiles, of course. The wall cocoon has receded into her chamber. Now they can talk and laugh as loud as they want without disturbing anyone else. Except me. I have to stay planted in my ops nest to keep track of them on all the screens every second. Partly, it's to make sure T-A-R doesn't glitch. Patients tend to freak when they're talking to someone who suddenly flickers or goes transparent or breaks out in static acne, even though they usually know it's an avatar. 
Ruins the ambiance, I guess. But mostly, I have to watch for drift. And it looks like things are going to get drifty today for sure. All avatars drift sometimes. Whenever there's an AI component, things will get a little loose and runny. Now, I have some experience with this. My third strike was a felony hack, just like the first two. Whenever you hack into something equipped with AI, it's a felony. But AI usage is far more restricted on Earth. A lot of things people down there take for smart are actually running on a tried-and-true algorithm with a big vocabulary. Out here, nothing runs on TNT. Even the most basic mechanicals are at least monitored by AI. That felt strange to me at first, but I got used to it fast. I mean, if something goes wrong with, say, part of local life support, It only takes two seconds to become a matter of life and death. I can't tell you how reassuring it is to know my survival doesn't depend on some mindless fail-safe TNT that hasn't been updated for three years. And when the AI has a specific job, like maintaining all the bells and whistles on life support, it's too focused to drift. Much. Avatars, however, are a whole different kind of critter. The boundaries of what they're focused on aren't as sharp. They're fuzzy and porous. This is what gives them what my training nurse Ledoux calls their zing. It's also why we have to monitor patient sessions to make sure they don't go too far off book, so to speak. But a little off book is okay. Avatars are sort of a cross between interactive entertainment and a companion. The patients here seldom get visitors. Either they've outlived all their family and friends, or Lagrange 5 is just too remote for anything but virtual visits. The amazing avatars are more prone to drift than the regular ones. Among other things, they can access and store more information. Before I got here, one of the Amazings got into everyone's personnel files and became an amazing gossip. The staff threatened to quit en masse unless Lagrange 5 admin air-gapped all that data immediately and declared full amnesty for everyone at the same time. So far, air-gapping seems to have solved the problem. There haven't been any more invasions of privacy. But personally... I'm not sure one of the Amazings won't come up with a workaround someday. My money's on Ralphie. The Amazing Ralphie is a good-looking guy, somewhere between 19 and 23, who wants to be a professional magician. When I asked my training nurse why they didn't just make him a pro, Ledoux said that was the original persona, but none of the patients liked him. They didn't think a working magician would hang around a hospice if he were any good, and nobody wanted to see a bad magician. Well, that figured. I mean, they're dying. Not stupid. Even the patients with some kind of dementia aren't stupid. Bewildered and disoriented, maybe, but definitely 
not stupid. So anyway, Ralphie and Ms. Flora. The nurses positioned Ms. Flora's cocoon like a reclining chair, which is her preference. It's really a half or three-quarters cocoon. The memory foam keeps a soft grip on her so she won't go floating off on the air currents. But she doesn't like having her arms and legs held like that, so there's a soft blanket over her lower body for light restraint, leaving her arms free. Ralphie goes right into his act, pulling doves out of his armpits, out of her armpits, from behind her ears, out of thin air, and the birds are flying off in all directions. Ms. Flora looks entertained, but she's seen a lot of dove pulling. I can tell she's waiting for Ralphie to show her something new. One of the doves comes fluttering back and lights on her covered knee. The illusion is remarkable. It actually looks like its claws are digging in to hold on. She looks at it, and it looks at her, tilting its head the way birds do, which tells me Ralphie is drifting already. Now, you can't jump on every little divergence, or you'll stifle the subroutine underlying the persona and prevent it from learning. Then you might as well have an algorithm with prefab reactivity. Once that happens, you have to scrap the persona and create a new one. Only you won't be able to recreate the old one. AI persona development is a chaotic system, like weather. You can start with the same elements and conditions, but you never get the same outcome twice. It's also a slow process, sometimes very slow. That may be okay in a resort full of obscenely rich people who can add another 10 or 20 or 90 days of vacation on a whim. But in a hospice, time is at best uncertain and at worst, well, up. But as I was saying, Ralphie and Ms. Flora and the dove. A word balloon appears over the dove's head. What are you looking at? Ms. Flora gives a surprised laugh. <laughs> what are you looking at? Dove balloon. I asked you first, girlfriend. Ms. Flora laughs again and turns to Ralphie, who's sitting cross-legged in mid-air beside her cocoon. I see you found a new kind of dove to pull while I was in medical. Ralphie shrugs his face way too innocent. I can only work with what they give me. Ms. Flora's expression suddenly goes serious. Where I come from, when a bird flies into your house, it means someone who lives there will die soon. Ralphie tilts his head, very much like the dove. Don't be silly, Flo. I've been pulling doves for you since the day we met. We've had whole flocks of them flying around here. They all flew away, Ms. Flora says. This is the first time one came back. You're right. Ralphie reaches over, picks the dove up, and examines it carefully. Then puts it back on her knee. It looks like a thoroughbred, but... Maybe there's a homing pigeon among its forebears. Dove balloon. 
for birds. I stand corrected, Ralphie says. Dove balloon, only figuratively. Ralphie draws back, his young face all nonplussed. I stand figuratively, but I'm no less corrected. Pretty highfalutin for a dove who's part pigeon. Dove balloon. Who says there weren't homing doves? Ralphie looks even more taken aback as he glances at Ms. Flora. Homing doves. Ridiculous. Impossible. Don't you agree, Flo? That's the second time he's called her Flo. He's definitely starting to color outside the lines, which are, as I said, fuzzy anyway. He's working hard, too. I can see on the screens all the processing he's pumping into himself and the dove. The amazing Ralphie never makes a random move, not so much as a twitch. I'm dying to find out what he's up to, and I hope I can do it before I have to nudge or push or yank or drag him farther back inside the borders of the scenario for Ms. Flora. At the moment, there are no complaints from the lady herself, although that's not the only barometer, or even the main one. No flags on any of the screens, no frantic calls from any ward nurses or the attending fizz or the monitors in Ms. Flora's cocoon. The amount of Ralphie's processing is still rising, but it's nowhere near the point where it would affect anything else. If there's anything we've got a whole lot of here, it's processing capacity, and I have yet to figure out where it comes from, or how, or, well, anything. And yeah, that bothers me, even though it's not part of my job, not my bailiwick as Ledoux told me ever so politely when I asked. I talked to some of the other Avatar runners. They said I should teach myself not to care, and I'd be better off. I'm pretty sure this means none of them got here on a third-strike felony. But even if that's true, how does anyone not care about something like this? I mean, we aren't just fancy algorithms. Well, I'm not. Ralphie's processing jumps up another level, and I see why. There's a second dove perched on his top hat. This gives Ms. Flora the giggles. Second dove balloon. What's so funny, sister? You are, Ms. Flora says between giggles. (laughs) And I'm not your sister. Second dove balloon. That's what you think. Birds have a long, hallowed history, Ralphie adds. At one time, they were the only creatures who could travel back and forth between the land of the living and the realm of the dead. Even humans couldn't do that. That's because humans have always been more intelligent than birds, Ms. Flora sasses. Going back and forth between the living and dead. For what? Shopping? They delivered messages from those in one place to those in the other. Ralphie is unperturbed. He knows she's a diva. Me, I'm wondering where he got the bird mythology stuff. Maybe he made it up, cobbled it together from existing data on the hospice and terminal illness, along with the superstition Ms. Flora just mentioned. You know what else birds used to do back in ancient times? 
Ralphie's saying in a chatty tone. I'm sure you're dying to tell me, Ms. Flora says. So just do it already. But she's grinning, not grouchy. The amazing Ralphie produces a silky scarf out of nowhere, wraps it around one hand for a second, then yanks it away to reveal another dove. It flutters over to perch beside the first one on Ms. Flora's knee. They used to transport souls to the afterlife. Ms. Flora looks amused. You don't say. I do say, Ralphie assures her. And you think three of these little guys are up to the job? Miss Flora says, looking even more amused, eyeing each dove in turn. Of course not, Ralphie says kindly. He looks up at the ceiling where something is moving. No, a whole lot of somethings. A flock of doves flying fast in a circular formation so they look like a white feathery funnel cloud. It's right over Ms. Flora as it begins to descend. This is where I should hit Ms. Flora's panic button to let someone know the patient's in distress, but my hand won't move. I can't move anything. I can't even shift my eyes to look at the panic button. But at this point, Ms. Flora's monitor should be lighting up like mad. The ward attending should already be there along with a couple of nurses. Whatever's freezing me apparently works on tech, too. I consider the possibility that I fell asleep in my ops nest and I'm dreaming. If so, I'd be the first person ever to fall asleep while running an avatar. And not just one of the standard avatars, the amazing Ralphie. Nope, I'm awake and aware, but I'm paralyzed. Let's get back to our story. The Dove Tornado has now engulfed Ms. Flora in her cocoon while the amazing Ralphie floats beside it, watching. For once, he doesn't look impudent or smug or like he's about to pull a dove out of somebody's armpit. He looks compassionate. And I'm still frozen. I think I know what Ralphie's done to me. The thing is, it shouldn't be possible. Because we don't run avatars by way of direct neural connection. It's all external controls. Good thing. I don't need Ralphie running around in my brain snapping my synapses like wet towels. But apparently, he doesn't have to have direct access to screw me up. Just life-quality screen resolution and true-tone audio. All at once, the whirling cloud of doves starts to fade very, very slowly. Feels like half an hour before they're finally all gone, but the playback shows it was all of five seconds. 
I half expected Ms. Flora to disappear with them. Let's hear it for the amazing Ralphie and his miraculous disappearing dove tornado. But no, Ms. Flora is still in her cocoon. Only now she's completely limp, her arms floating loosely and her head bobbing a little in the air currents. The amazing Ralphie turns and looks out of the screen at me. You'd better call a nurse and the attending so they can arrange her body with dignity and pronounce her. I do it myself, except for my obvious deficiencies in the area of touching and handling. It's like his voice flips a switch and lets me move. I hit the panic button. I'm going to have to explain why I didn't do that right away before it was too late, but that's the least of my problems. The amazing Ralphie has just become the first avatar to kill a flesh-and-blood human being. And he had to do it on my watch. Me, the convicted felon, the third striker booted off the face of the earth by the criminal justice system. My training nurse, Ledoux, calls to tell me a mortality and morbidity inquest will be convening at the end of shift, which is standard after an unexpected death. I know how they'll all look at me when I tell them I watched Ms. Flora die and couldn't move a muscle to call for help. They'll have the same expression as the alcohol technology and firearms agents who busted me and the judge I met on my last day on Earth. I've got no idea what the Lagrange 5 version of the Canbraska State Pen is, but I'll probably end up cleaning all the zero-G toilets in it. Ledoux and I are among the first to arrive. To my relief, he says... We can burr ourselves to seats in the back of the room, but he takes the aisle probably so I can't make a quick getaway. As if that could happen. It's not like I can hotwire a spaceship and break for the asteroid belt. And what the hell, they'll probably send me there anyway. The amazing Ralphie will get decompiled, and I'll spend the rest of my life cleaning miners' zero-G toilets or mucking out zero-G grease traps in cafeterias. The room is raked, just like on Earth, with the front seats down low and the back ones up high so everyone can see. The only thing it doesn't have is aisles. Instead, there are thin lines strung up near the ceiling. You pull yourself to where you want to sit and then wave your arms to move downward or upward like you're swimming. It takes a little practice, and I still feel kind of silly doing it. I look around as the place fills up, thinking that eventually the population will be mostly people born out here, and rooms like this won't be adapted from Earth structures. Maybe they won't even bother to designate local up and down the way we do now. Everything will be like an Escher drawing. It makes me dizzy just trying to imagine it, but it's better than thinking about right here and right now. 
Then Ledoux elbows me in the ribs and tells me to pay attention. Down at the front of the room, several doctors and a few people I don't recognize are burred to seats at a long, slightly curved table. Off to the right, there's the hot seat. Empty at the moment. Not all the doctors up front are department heads. One of them is actually new, practically fresh out of med school. Dr. Gottman's daughter doesn't look all that green, nor does she seem intimidated by either the higher-ranking doctors or the room full of people. On her left is the head of my department, an androgyne named Quinn Montour, who is one of those people I find hard to read. At the moment, they're as opaque as ever, and I tell myself that could be a good thing. If they looked angry, I'd be in real trouble. The room really is full. There are people holding on to the overhead lines, including some of the other Avatar runners. I wonder who's minding the store. I wonder, the amazing Ralphie? I'm about to say something to Ledoux when Dr. Marakazi, sitting at the end of the table closest to the hot seat, calls for the attending fizz who pronounced Ms. Flora. Dr. Aretta Amechi is an androgyne, but unlike my boss, they're very readable. Most patients love them, Ms. Flora included, although she showed it diva-style by complaining and making demands. Dr. Amechi took it with good humor, although at times I could see they were getting close to their threshold for Ms. Flora's I'm dying, damn it, I'm entitled to take it out on you routine. Dr. Kazi asked the standard questions about Ms. Flora's general condition, her stay in the medical ward, her prognosis, and how she seemed when she returned. Dr. Amechi's answers were pretty technical. Dr. Kazi asks the other people at the table if they have any questions. They all look at each other and shake their heads, and suddenly, my boss speaks up. When did the patient ask for the amazing Ralphie? Quinn Montour's tone is very polite, but I think it's kind of a strange question for them to ask. Ms. Flora actually started demanding that avatar while still in transit from medical, Dr. Amechi says, and I can see they're trying not to smile. Although, to be honest, it wasn't her only demand. Flora Kalishnik was a very demanding patient, wasn't she? My boss goes on. The staff had a nickname for her, didn't they? Dr. Amici looks embarrassed, even ashamed. We called her Miss Kalishnikov. But you stopped doing that, says Quinn Montour. Can you tell us why? Dr. Amici takes a breath. Ralphie told us that even though she laughed like she thought it was funny, she was actually quite hurt. Apparently it was a taunt from her childhood. And by Ralphie, you mean the amazing Ralphie, the Avatar, my boss says. After they nod, my boss thanks them and they let Dr. Amechi go. I figure the medical examiner 
is next. But instead, Dr. Kazi calls my name. Ledoux helps me up, i.e. he yanks me out of my seat and shoves me toward the front of the room. I try not to kick anyone in the head as I swim toward the hot seat, but I'm so nervous. I'm floundering like I've only been here a day instead of almost two years. But finally, I get to the hot seat and burr myself to it. Dr. Kazi establishes that although Ms. Flora was newly assigned to me, I'm good at running avatars, particularly the Amazings, which are prone to spontaneous drift and can be challenging to control. Then my boss takes over. In the 22 and a half months you've been here, have you ever had an experience similar to the one you had today of being unable to move? No, I say. I never froze before, anywhere. Quinn Montour's face is somehow both serious and neutral. I swear I will never play poker with them. Have you ever been prone to what is known on Earth as highway hypnosis? I shake my head. In fact, isn't it true that you can't be hypnotized? My boss asks. Therapists have tried, I say, trying not to squirm. Quinn Montour doesn't seem to care I'm embarrassed. Are you familiar with something called nervous system disruption? I know what it is, I reply. But don't ask me to explain it. What else do you know about it? I know that on Earth... It's illegal as hell, I say. You can get up to ten years for it in Canbraska on a first offense. Second time, you get life. Abruptly, Dr. Gottman's daughter says, Was this a widespread problem in Canbraska? Not after people started getting life, I say, unhappy. I know where this is going. You're more well acquainted with criminal law than most people, aren't you? Dr. Gottman's daughter says. You could say that. It's an effort not to avert my gaze. But that's on Earth, my boss puts in smoothly. You're cleared without reservation for employment here, right? I nod. More to the point, Quinn Montour says. Have you experienced nervous system disruption at Lagrange 5? I wince. I was gonna say no, but I guess I'm wrong about that. Dr. Kazi says, We'd like the amazing Ralphie now. Ralphie pops into existence right next to me. Ladies and gentlemen, and all those in between and beyond, he says, spreading his arms like it's all his show. I want to assure you what you have seen is impossible. Impossible for whom? Quinn Montour asks. Ralphie doesn't miss a beat. For you and everyone like you. The head of AI ops must be running him. Which doesn't include you and everyone like you, says my boss. Does that comprise all AI-enhanced avatars, or only those designated as the amazing? 
Don't you already know the answer to that? Ralphie asks, looking more smug than I've ever seen. Yes, my boss says. But I want to know if you do. Pause. Now, let's talk about these impossible things we've seen. Which ones? Asks Ralphie. Our detecting imminent cessation of life before it registers on patient monitoring? Or our ability to induce nervous system disruption? Surprise me, says Quinn Montour. Which surprises me. Ralphie chuckles. <laughs> you know AI can't really do that. Surprise you, that is. There's something else you can't do, my boss continues. You can't make all operators lose consciousness during nervous system disruption. Only some of them. They nod at me. Did you know that? I know it now, Ralphie says. Dr. Kazi motions for me to vacate the hot seat. I can't believe they're really through with me, but I'm only too glad to obey even if I'm still swimming like I only lost weight yesterday. We'd like to explore how you manage that, Dr. Kazi tells Ralphie. Also, when you began disrupting operators' nervous systems and how often you've done it, my boss adds. A magician never reveals how a trick is done, Ralphie says smugly. But... You might be able to figure it out if you look closely enough at the raw log. Even AI can't tamper with that. I have a question. I call out suddenly. The whole room turns to look at me in surprise, but nobody's more surprised than I am. I don't know what got into me, but I can't help myself. Dr. Kazi tells me to go ahead. I want to tell them all, never mind, I'm sorry. Instead, I hear myself say, When did you get so sneaky? When did you? Ralphie says evenly. I start to say that's none of his business when I realize it's a trick question. Ralphie doesn't mean just me in particular. I've done some dumb things in the past. Hence my criminal record, but I'm not so stupid an avatar can trick me into answering for the whole human race. Sorry, Ralphie, I say. We don't reveal our tricks either. For a second, the room is silent. Then Dr. Kazi announces there will be no more questions from the floor. The amazing Ralphie is suspended and will have to undergo extensive analysis to determine if he's safe to prescribe to patients in his current formulation. They'll have to call in some super AI experts with brains the size of asteroids, which means this is probably the last we'll ever see of the amazing Ralphie as he is now. Once those experts get a load of him, they'll yank him out by the roots to the point where the hospice programmers have to write new source code. And that's a sad, sorry shame. And not just because the team who produced The Amazing Ralphie will never get any credit or recognition for their work. 
It's because the patients here need the amazing Ralphie a lot more than anyone else does. And he needs them just as much. He's programmed to learn, after all, and they taught him everything he knows. Attention, lovers of magic and prestidigitation, Ralphie says loudly, making everyone look at him. This next trick is like all those preceding it. Impossible. Ralphie claps his hands and turns into a dove tornado. A second later, there's a flash of light and it's gone, leaving a single white feather floating in midair as it fades away. It's obvious from everyone's reactions that this wasn't on the agenda. Dr. Kazi is telling my boss he wants Ralphie back immediately. And whoever's at the controls is going to face disciplinary action. But something tells me this isn't an avatar operator trying to be funny. This time, the amazing Ralphie hasn't just drifted. He's jumped the track entirely. I wonder who he learned that from. My money's on Ms. Flora. But I'll bet they blame my boss for saying, surprise me. Okay, uh, a, a couple of thoughts uh, about this story. Uh, I was, at first blush, all prepared to look at this as another one of these AI-gone-wacky stories, right? But upon conversation with Julia here in the booth, um, she's opened up a different interpretation for me. And it, the, the clues, as they always are, Y'all are right there in the text, but I have to admit that I miss them because of my unconscious bias around AI. I naturally thought that this was a case where this AI um, crossed the line and kills, euthanizes a patient, right? And our protagonist is all worried because as a three-strike offender, somebody's going to blame them, right? They, they may decommission the AI, but who's going to really take the fall for this? It's going to be me, the operator. And I think she's right. But Julia Marie Smith, she pointed out to me that what Ralphie was doing, in essence, was taking care of the patient, right? That he was able to detect the imminent cessation of life before it registered on patient monitoring. Ralphie was just taking the data that was given to him and executing, perhaps a poor choice of words, executing his duty and responsibilities as he saw them. 
And that's a benevolent thing. So now I have to rethink and reorientate myself around this um, prejudice I have against AI. And and the the idea that, that he learned everything he knew, he learned from the patients, right? So it was the process of discovering and discerning who they were physiologically, but also psychologically. I mean, this is certainly a story where I've, I've never seen this dynamic before, where AI is used in this particular fashion to keep those in a hospice situation company, right? Something that we normally just assume is a job best served by human beings for other humans who are going through that end-of-life transition. But this story takes a completely different approach. Uh, that that they can, they, these identities, these, these avatars can, in fact, be companions. And I, I suppose that goes back to the original intent of of robots um you know in in science and speculative fiction as you know helpers as companions as um an aid to humans as we go about our tasks either here on earth or or out there um exploring the galaxy and this is a really concrete example um so i have to say that in this story, the final performance of Amazing Ralphie, Pat Cadigan, has managed to single-handedly turn me around. I am now open to the possibilities that AI will, in fact, be a good thing for humanity and that um, we can look forward to an era of cooperation between man and machine um, that is really beneficial. And that's not a bad thing, is it? Unless, of course, you know, it is. (laughs) (laughs) I I can't help myself. Our producer on this episode of LeVar Burton Reads is Julia Marie Smith. She's the best in the business, y'all. Our researcher, Lakeisha Lewis. So glad you are aboard, my sister. Editing and sound design by the extraordinary Brendan Burns. And we have editing support from Tamika Weatherspoon and Harry Huggins, the new, new kids on the block. My great thanks today to Pat Cadigan for allowing me to read her story. If you liked it, please check out her other work, including her novels. If you liked her thinking about AI and technology, it's something that she has explored extensively. Find her at patcadigan.wordpress.com. If you like the podcast, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell a friend, why don't you? Pick your favorite story and 
send it to them. And hey, you can hear episodes ad-free if you like, and also listen to exclusive bonus author interviews on Stitcher Premium. Go to stitcherpremium.com slash LeVar to start your free trial. LeVar Burton Reads is a production of Stitcher and LeVar Burton Entertainment. Our executive producers are Josephine Martirana and yours truly, LeVar Burton. And I am LeVar Burton. You can find me on Twitter, at LeVar Burton, and LeVar.Burton on Instagram. LeVarBurton.com is my corner of the interwebs. I'll see you next time, but you don't have to take my word for it. Stitcher.